0: I just wasn't really aware of the extent of my power until I started to understand that three, four times a day, I'm eating products that are contributing to mass suffering. I'm paying for others to be killed, abused, violated, just exploited. Once I realized that my purchasing choices, my psychology, it made me start thinking about other things that I do in my life and being more mindful of how I talk to people. The words that I use, the body language, I would say I became a lot more self-aware and that led me to being a healthier individual, mind, body, and spirit. I know that the choices that I make have power
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Plant Based News Podcast. This week I'm incredibly excited to welcome to the show a very exciting guest, animal, climate and human rights activist and the founder of Apex Advocacy, Christopher Sol Eubanks. Born in Ohio and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, Christopher Sol Eubanks is a social justice advocate, public speaker, author and animal rights activist whose work aims to combat all forms of injustice. After seven years in a corporate role, he chose to become an entrepreneur to pursue creative work with a meaningful purpose. He now uses his talents and skills to address political and social issues and promote the message of veganism and animal liberation. After discovering the horrors of animal exploitation, Sol became vegan, began doing community organizing and helped co-organize Atlanta's first-ever animal rights march. In 2021, Seoul founded Apex Advocacy, a non-profit animal rights organization that uses digital content creation and grassroots activism for animal advocacy. Apex Advocacy aims to increase the number of BIPOC individuals who participate in animal activism by empowering their activism, providing them with professional and personal development, and building greater equity in the animal protection movement. The organization advocates for collective liberation through animal rights, particularly in marginalized areas and communities that are disproportionately affected by the animal industrial complex. In 2021, he was also one of the first grantees of the People's Fund, a program awarded by Mercy for Animals that seeks to ensure all advocates and organizations are working towards our shared mission and have equitable access to resources that they need to achieve their goals. Sol has used his arsenal of talents to advocate for both human and non human animals. He attends animal vigils, gives animal rights lectures at universities, and creates content for his YouTube channel, Culture Vegan. Sol aspires to live a vegan lifestyle that aims to eliminate all forms of animal suffering, and he encourages others to extend their circle of compassion to include all animals. In this episode, we'll dive into Sol's journey as an animal rights activist, particularly his intersectional approach to deconstructing colonization and the oppressive systems built by it. We'll learn about his work with Apex Advocacy and how they empower and elevate the voices of marginalized communities in the animal rights movement. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this thought-provoking conversation. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. As always, if you like this episode, please don't forget to comment, like, and share. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a review. It honestly does help get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN Podcast, Chris. Uh, It's great to see you again and sit down and hear your story.
0: Yes, thank you for having me. I'm just overwhelmed with the emotions just being here. It's been a minute since we've been able to connect, so um, I'm glad to be here. I would say it really started when I was 13 and I read the book Autobiography of Malcolm X. That kind of introduced me to the concept of not eating animals. What I realized as I was being introduced to veganism, when I saw animal suffering, I thought about all of the injustices that I saw happening to black and brown people. And once I made that connection from animals being slaughtered, that's when I realized that I had to actually take a stance against the exploitation of animals because I didn't feel it was morally consistent for me to advocate against one form of oppression while contributing to another form of oppression. When I was doing activism and when I started to participate in a variety of actions, I started to notice that there wasn't an intentional effort from the animal rights community to include people of color. So what I decided to do was start my nonprofit, which is called Apex Advocacy. Apex stands for Animal Protection Equality Intersectionality. We also make sure that the people that are doing the work for our organization are people of color. Ultimately, we want our ideas and our initiatives to be centered and thought of by people that haven't necessarily had the equity in the movement to share their ideas and execute what they feel is impactful for animals.
1: Before we get started and learn about all the amazing things that you've been doing in recent years, let's go back in time and tell us your vegan story. Where did you first discover this lifestyle and where did that all begin for you?
0: Oh, so that's a great question. I always love hearing people's vegan stories because it's like reading a book or, um, watching some uh, a, a new movie. But essentially, I always predate my vegan story to when I was 13, and I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And that kind of introduced me to the concept of not consuming animals to a degree. Um, he was a very mindful person about his health, um, and he didn't eat specific things, and he didn't eat some animals. And uh, after reading that book, I read the book *How to Eat to Live*, which was a book from his mentor, and that was even more focused on not consuming specific things in your diet and not consuming some animals. So I slowly started to not eat some animals. So at thirteen, I stopped eating pigs. Fifteen, I stopped eating cows, and then at seventeen, I became fully vegetarian. Then I would say a decade later, I just realized that okay. I'm feeling out of the norm. I don't really have any vegetarian friends and I don't have a community, or I just felt weird about it. Um, so I started back eating animals. But then I would say a few years later, uh saw the film Cowspiracy. And that really got me thinking, and I stopped eating all animal products that same day. And that was in 2016. And that was the beginning of me beginning to do more in the animal rights space and um, becoming fully vegan because after watching Cowspiracy, I realized that I wasn't being the environmentalist that I wanted to be. So I eliminated all the animal products from my diet, but then I slowly started to learn about animal agriculture and the ethics of veganism over the next, I would say, six months to a year. And that's when I began to do more um, advocacy and really focus on the ethical aspects of not consuming animals and animal rights. So that's just, I guess, a brief introduction into my vegan story. We can't ignore the things that impact us as individuals and how that actually perpetuates violence and oppression in our society. So right now we have an initiative called No Backyard Slaughter, where we are trying to eliminate slaughterhouses from black and brown communities. Imagine living next door to a slaughterhouse where you can hear the gunshots, you can hear the animals being killed. So we've been working with the community on a pressure campaign against the county, but now we're also trying to approach the city council with a proposal to transition the slaughterhouse into a a plant-based company. And we have a variety of initiatives that we work on. We work on a Black Vegan Everything campaign showcasing Black-owned vegan businesses, and we have a global majority caucus where we create space for advocates of color. The thing that gives me hope about the future of the animal rights movement is the young generation of activists that I'm seeing take center stage and propel the movement into places where I think that we are probably not even prepared to see the movement go because I don't think it's gonna be too many more generations where contributing to animal abuse and exploitation will be the norm.
1: Amazing, and obviously, you know, you've have some commonalities there with a lot of people, which is documentary. The power of documentary being able to convince people to make such huge shifts uh, in their lives is it's remarkable. I've spoken to so many people over the years, and they all point to these pieces of art. In my opinion, because you know, you've got scripts, and you've got culture, and you've got testaments of all kinds of different people, and it's really transformative. and yeah it's an, it's an amazing experience to to see one's life change completely and take a totally different direction. but speaking of different directions, obviously you can see yourself a uh, vegan advocate, and an activist. Tell us about how you got involved in in activism and and you know what were your steps towards your activism?
0: Yeah, so I will say once I watched Cowspiracy and learned that, okay, this is the uh, consuming animals isn't something that I want to do because it's bad for the environment. I slowly started to learn about the ethics. And um, a big part of this was watching a lot of vegan outreach online from people like Earthling Ed and James Aspie and Gary Urofsky. Um At the time, they were producing a lot of content on YouTube, and I would just watch them in the streets just for entertainment uh, purposes, just to, I guess, give people a perspective on uh, a full perspective on veganism. And once I started realizing, um, that they were having results and they were having these really powerful conversations with people and changing their hearts and minds is something that I felt I wanted to do also. So that was my first entry into animal advocacy was joining um, at the time uh, anonymous for the voiceless in 2017 and being a part of what they called cube day, which was like the day where most of their chapters do and orchestrated, uh, organized global action to do vegan outreach. So that was like my first time doing any form of animal advocacy. And then slowly I started to be involved with other organizations from the Humane League to Mercy for Animals and PETA and did a variety of things from demonstrations to some small undercover work at uh, circuses protests at aquariums, just a variety of different things. But essentially after watching vegan outreach, it just really kickstarted me to explore not only vegan outreach, but doing other forms of advocacy. And this was important to me because you know, I, I felt that I grew up as a person that was conscious of social injustice, but here I was supporting what I consider in terms of scale, the largest social injustice that we have two to three trillion, it's estimated two to three trillion animals are killed every year for our consumption choices. And it's something that I didn't morally agree with, but I didn't connect that my actions were contributing to this. So once I realized that, wow, this is something that I've been against morally, but my actions said otherwise, I knew that there were tons of other people out there that were doing the same thing. And my goal was to put my time and energy into helping people make those connections to match their morals with their actions. So I think there's unfortunately so many systems of oppression that uphold animal oppression that is incumbent upon us as a movement to not necessarily, you know, we don't have to make that the focus of the movement because this movement does belong to the animals. But we can't ignore all of these other systems of oppression. Um, when you think about the, uh, honestly, the sexual oppression um, of, the, of uh, you know female animals and how their bodies are exploited, and even male animals, you know how they are forced to uh, uh, produce semen and how they have electric roads, uh pushing their bodies that force them uh, to produce semen. How cows are, you know, forced to be pregnant every nine months. You know, this, this sexual exploitation is an oppression that happens in the oppression of animals. Um, when we look at the workers that are in positions uh, in these jobs, working at slaughterhouses and how these industries prey on people with you know, low education or, or in dire needs or refugees or you know, uh, immigrants, you know, they prey on people in vulnerable situations so they put them in situations where they have to work jobs killing animals every day and how that impacts their the people's communities that they they, uh, they live in you know they go home and they are desensitized to violence on a mass scale now so that impacts uh, our communities and that impacts our society as a whole so that's why it's very important that we understand how all of these other oppressions exist within the oppression of animals and how it's on us to understand them and by understanding them that doesn't mean that we take the focus away from the animals at all it just means that we don't ignore these other oppressions that help to keep animal oppression going Tell us a
1: little bit about how you do your work today and what kind of successes have you had? Have you, you know, you created an organization. How did you come up with the idea to start that and what kind
0: of successes or what kind of campaigns do you run? I will say what catapulted me to, I guess, start my own uh, nonprofit was as I was doing activism and vegan outreach and all of these different types of events and activities, I started to notice that there wasn't the representation that I thought that should be represented in the animal rights community and in animal rights spaces. And I just wasn't seeing people of color. I wasn't seeing the diversity that I thought should be there. I have participated in other forms of advocacy and I felt like it was something that wasn't really an issue or I didn't notice. But when I started doing animal rights advocacy work, I started to really notice that there wasn't the diversity there that it could be. And I felt like this was a missed opportunity. So I just started to think about how I could contribute to this. How could I change this or impact this or what effect uh, or impact I could have on this and bringing about a more diverse movement? And I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I had a variety of ideas, but I didn't want these ideas to just be one-offs or just be something that I did for a few months, and then I was on to another project and so forth and so on. So what I decided to do was just have a nonprofit where I could address the concerns of diversity in the animal rights movement. And that's really what uh, launched APEX. So APEX Advocacy is my nonprofit. Uh, Stands APEX is an acronym for Animal Protection, Equality, Intersectionality. So we have a very, I would say, Uh, intersectional lens when it comes to the work that we do at APEX. We know that the people that are doing animal advocacy, that we want to connect with people of color, have a lot of issues that they systemically face. So we make space for that. And also we know that the systems that exploit animals also exploit other individuals. And it's a multi-oppression, I guess, uh, operation, honestly. So we try to make space for those and talk about these ideas and concepts and give them space to breathe and build our campaigns around the idea of uh, intersectional animal rights. So essentially what I do these days, I I run my nonprofit along with a few of the campaigns that we have right now, uh, getting them off the ground and trying to reach as many advocates of color that we can to be a part of our network in our community and collaborate on activism so I want people to know that if they are a part of the apex community they have other like-minded individuals that share similar backgrounds and similar ethnicities that they can collaborate and do animal advocacy work and they don't necessarily have to just always look at the mainstream movement or the mainstream organization's default setting to participate in animal advocacy It's fine if they do you know we definitely want people to do activism in a way that feels comfortable for them, but we also, or with whatever organization they feel comfortable with, but we want to create this community where people of color can come together and create ideas and campaigns together, start their own organizations and build that foundation for them to to work on animal advocacy. We have to understand that colonization has really brought uh, forth Exploiting animals on such a mar- large, massive scale, this isn't something that was done in black and brown and indigenous communities. You know, we have more of a harmonious relationship with uh, non-human animals before colonization. So a lot of the foods that we were eating were predominantly plant-based, like a lot of cultures before colonization that existed had massive amounts of plant-based options. So it's just about helping more people of color uh understand that you know consuming animals on this such large scale is something that was brought in through colonization is it isn't something that was done in our culture previously on, on such a large scale if we can go back a bit and talk about
1: intersectionality and intersectional veganism, uh, there are going to be people who are listening to this who've never heard that phrase before, and the people who have heard it before and may have heard negative things about it. There are I've been I've been vegan for twelve years, and there are people who, like myself, who believe in the importance of intersectional veganism, and there are others who say. Veganism is about animals, non-human animals, even though humans are animals, (laughs) non-human animals and nothing else that we shouldn't bring in other social justice issues because it, in quotes, muddies the water. Firstly, what do you say to people about why intersectional veganism really matters and give us a bit of background as to why this type of conversation is really essential?
0: Oh, yeah, this is a conversation that is extremely important to have in Honestly, like I said, this is part of why I started my organization, because we do have to recognize that the reason that it is important is for a variety of reasons. I mean, I could ramble on and on. But ultimately, one thing that I harp on is that the people that we are hoping to have in this movement to expand animal advocacy work, they deal with the systemic oppressions that the animals deal with. also. Obviously, it's in different ways, but just growing up black and brown in America, I know that there are systems in place that disproportionately negatively impact black and brown people than whites. And I think in order for this movement to grow and expand and to be inclusive, we're going to have to recognize those things. You know, we don't live in a single issue society. We're not going to solve or in these oppressions, uh, one oppression at a time. We have to be able to address all of these issues in a variety of ways, and we're going to need more people. We just can't rely on the current infrastructure of animal advocacy to bring about animal liberation or collective liberation. We have to grow and expand, and a part of that is pulling in new people and understanding the things that they deal with in terms of their backgrounds and their experiences. I mean, there are people in other social justice movements that have tons of experience um, in a long history of fighting against these same systems that we are fighting for animals with. So we're going to need their input, their experience. You know, this is the way that we really get to collective liberation. We can't get to collective liberation if the movement looks one way and thinks one way. We're going to need new ideas, and new people. And I think addressing the intersectionality of these issues is what's going to help this movement grow. So I think, you know, without addressing intersectionality, we're going to put a cap on how far we can go and how many people we can reach. And if we aren't willing to have these difficult conversations, the movement won't grow. And also, the movement isn't perfect. There's things that are troubling that happen in The animal rights space and at organizations in animal advocacy work that need to be addressed. And if we once again are just having a single issue lens and approach, then we don't make space for these conversations to have. There's there's white supremacy that impacts animal advocacy work, that impacts animal agriculture. So these things tie into each other, and you can still advocate 100% for the animals. And it doesn't mean that if you are willing to speak about intersectionality, that you somehow are diluting your efforts for the animals. No, it just means that you're recognizing that there are other oppressions that exist and how they all tie together. So, um, like I said, I can ramble on and on.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting, it's a complex, and you say, difficult conversation. So let's take racism, for example. Racism is pervasive across our entire planet in all parts of human society. It's not just in the vegan movement, it's in all groupings of people that come together where people of different ethnicities blend and spend time together. People prejudice and discriminate against each other. But let's just just focus a bit on racism, for example, and you mentioned white supremacy. Racism is obviously a system of oppression which excludes people based on the color of their skin and kind of keeps people out of certain It could be in organizations, it could be events, it could be, you know, racist behavior can also be, you know, on a, on an individual level where people use racist language, how Practically, are we able to address something like racism within the vegan sort of movement and, and the spaces, the events, the organizations? Is it about just simply addressing it on an individual level? Or are there ways in which we should be addressing and having these difficult conversations, as you say, because you know, racism is a very broad term. It's a big thing. It's a very heavy, challenging social problem that goes on in our society. But how do we as vegan activists, particularly in Caucasian or white vegan activists, how can we be better allies to to help resolve some of the, the systemic racism that goes on across the movement and of course the whole world?
0: Yeah, that's a very great question. And it's a very difficult question to answer, honestly, because it's, I think if we had a clear cut answer, then I think we would all be doing it. You know, we would, be implementing it across the board. Um, So I don't think there's one way. I think there's a variety of things that we can do. I think one of the things is through having these difficult conversations and uh, and addressing it and not being scared to talk about it and acting like it doesn't exist uh, because no matter where you are and yeah, leaning into it and being honest about it, you're going to a variety of protests and actions and you never see black and brown people, then you should question what's going on. Is the organization that I'm doing advocacy work with, are they inclusive? Is it something they care about? Is it something they don't care about? Is it something that people have addressed and they've ignored? Uh, Sometimes it may just be you know, your community. Maybe you live in a predominantly white community. So, okay, you may not necessarily interact with as many different ethnicities, but it's not always the case. That shouldn't be unilaterally you know, across the board for the larger movement. So I guess, honestly, being honest and questioning the organizations that you participate in, the advocacy work that you participate in, the communities that you participate in with your advocacy work, if you're doing, can outreach and protest and the same communities, think about how are, are you, are we bringing in new voices? Are we addressing new crowds? Are we just speaking to the same people? Um, So those are ways that we can, I guess, address it, even if it's not called out, you know, verbatim. So
1: you're talking really about two things, visibility and representation. It's important that we are all questioning visibility and representation. I'll give a really good example how we do it at Plant Based News. We produce a variety of media on a regular basis. And when we go to gather thumbnails or imagery for articles or videos, you know, when you go into uh, into uh, image libraries and you type person eating a burger or person getting married or a man sitting at a table, 99% of the time the, the stock image engines will give you white people, Uh, you know, and that is a form of white supremacy. And we'll talk a bit about white supremacy. White supremacy doesn't necessarily mean pitchfork carrying Ku Klux Klan white people. It just means a system where white people are prioritized, right? Always put at the top, always prioritize the supreme from the word supremacy, from the word supreme, meaning on top. And I think, you know, I'm always encouraging my team to be very conscious and aware of racial bias and also gender bias as well. When we are people, uh, we are always more biased to our own race or our own gender or our own culture. And that it's sometimes, you know, a blind spot for many people. We don't think about it because we have never had to think about it. But I think to your point representation and visibility is vital because what that does is it creates an image, an actual image, where people see themselves in the media that is being produced. If you go on Plant Based News today, you will see a diverse selection of faces and people in all our articles. You won't just see heterosexual couples, you'll see sometimes trans couples or gay couples, you'll see black and brown people, you'll see Asian people, because the movement is a diverse group of people And for many years, you know, we've had this problem with white supremacy, where white people have always prioritized themselves in many, many ways, not necessarily always for some insidious, selfish reason, but just because of this racial bias that goes on where people are not questioning their behavior. They're not questioning their photography choices or their speaker choices. The number of times I've been to events and you look at the stage and it's all white people sitting there or, you know, you question, where's the diversity? Where are the people of color? Where are the, the Asian uh, vegans? You know, it it's important. And sometimes it's as simple as saying to the event organizer, I noticed that your speaking panels are not very diverse. Please, could you make an effort to be more diverse this year or next year or whenever you can do it? So just using your voice, right, is just or an email or a text message or anything to speak up. Not everyone has the courage to be so confrontational, and the difficult conversations around race can be hard. I mean, have you got any advice for people who want to talk about these things but are scared or afraid of offending people or saying the wrong thing because it's a very, very difficult subject talking about race and racism
0: I don't know if I would say I have advice per se um because it it can be difficult, but I also will say that it's necessary, and if we are really truly going to achieve collective liberation then we can't be afraid to discuss these things. And it doesn't mean that you have to go out into the street screaming about them. You know, you can talk about them with people that you care about first. You can have, uh, you know, quick messages to maybe some of your favorite organizations just to get the ball rolling on interacting in a non-hostile way, because I think you can have these conversations and it doesn't have to be combative, even though it is a heavy conversation. And I think that's what people really fear is that, yeah, canceled, uncomfortable, but you can address these things in a way that's sustainable for you. So whatever way that you feel you should communicate, I would say is is a starting point for having conversations.
1: Yeah. We want to call people in rather than calling people out uh I think calling people out publicly should be a last resort. My personal opinion is if you've got a problem with a person or an individual or an organization, you should send them an email, you should do have a call with them uh, and give them an opportunity to have dialogue because I think there without dialogue there will be there is no change. There's no opportunity for people to transform and adapt their behavior, their culture, their organization. I think there is a real tendency in today's world to immediately go straight for the jugular. On either side of the political spectrum or the conversation, and not really allow the other person to make space for growth because where there is no space for growth, then things just stagnate and they stay exactly the same, and then you have all this conflict which is ultimately not going to get any of us anywhere but moving on from the topic of racism and conflict, because you know we do all continually want to see a better world, and that's going to take work, and as you say, those different and we call them difficult conversations for a reason because they are difficult they are painful but i believe that you know when we all keep talking and we all keep having honest conversations with each other i really believe that you know the vegan movement this global movement which is uh, you know sometimes we like to call it the rainbow tribe which is a collection of people of all different ethnicities from every single country on earth there are no other social justice movements like it where there are people who collectively care about a, an, a single issue that also as you say intersectionally connect to other issues like Racial division, ra- racism. You know, human rights through you know, uh, workers' rights, uh, women's rights, female reproductive rights. There's so many loops that come in through animal agriculture because. The industry is so pervasive, isn't it? It's so entwined in our lives and it affects so many human beings and of course, animals as well. But tell us a little bit more about what it's like to be a black vegan activist, because as you mentioned, growing up in the United States, it comes with a lot of challenges. You, know, you mentioned transforming and, and working in, with your organization to be intersectional, but what are some of the sort of things and challenges that you face personally when you first started having these conversations or when you started Apex?
0: Yeah. um, Well, I've had a group of challenges with just my nonprofit, but in terms of being a, I guess, a Black activist and uh, when I first started doing animal advocacy, I think the lack of representation was startling to me uh, initially. That was a big challenge to, I guess, get past. And I, I feel like after a while, I just became a little bit desensitized to it. Although I wasn't, I wouldn't say that I was not aware of it. It just didn't impact me as much as time went on. Also, I became, uh, I guess, a local leader in the animal activism scene here in Atlanta. So a lot of my energy went towards organizing and mobilizing the community. And that kind of maybe took some of the awareness of, uh, or or some of the time and energy that I was spent thinking about to how diverse the movement is. Instead, organizing and mobilizing, that kind of took some of that away. But I think, yeah, like I said, one of the biggest difficulties was just feeling out of place and not having other people to consult. Uh, I will say when I first started doing animal activism, there was one activist, she worked for PETA, and she she was an incredible Black woman activist. She was the first Black woman that was doing animal activism. Actually, she was the first black person that I saw doing animal activism and she was an inspiration to me. So I will say that helped out because without her, I don't know how far I would have gotten in my journey without just seeing that representation, just having conversations with her about, you know, why she may not participate in as many actions. She used to work for a large, uh, mainstream animal rights organization, and she spoke about the difficulties that she had at this organization. And just having her you know, share these conversations with me, this isn't something that I would have gotten that I didn't get from other people that were just doing actions. Uh, a lot of the other people that were doing actions that I knew at the time were predominantly white. So uh, we weren't talking about intersectionality. We weren't talking about how we feel in the movement, You know, how the movement may not address our concerns. So this is a a bond that I had with her initially, and we're still great friends to this day, and she no longer works in the animal advocacy space because she got burnt out. So I guess, you know, looking at her journey kind of gave me context to what I should expect or just made me aware and turned on a light bulb for me for a lot of things. So that, that, that was a difficult thing to, I guess, not feel as many connections and i think had it been you know maybe five or ten of her i don't know where i could be right now um or Mm -hmm. what kind of community we could have but i think that like presentation was big
1: yeah the, the big the key word there is is community support right is people around you who embrace you and support you through difficult times. And if you don't feel there are people around you that you can confide, confide in and can identify with, why would you continue? You mentioned the word burnout. It is such a common thing that happens to people who work in, in advocacy, who work in charity, who work in the nonprofit space, people who are involved in these. Uh, and I personally experienced it myself. You just want to keep going no matter what, because you feel so passionately about what you're doing and you feel guilty about taking rests and taking time off. You know, that actually leads me nicely to my next question is about self-care. How do we force ourselves to stop working so much and putting so much time and energy into our work? Because, you know, an activist or a campaigner or an advocate that is suffering severe mental health crises due to overworking. Isn't good for the animals. It's not good for the planet. It's got not good for anyone. But it, but many of us find ourselves in this position. So, what are your what's your advice for people who who are burnt out or on the way to feeling burnt out and and really just need some time off, but just don't know how to stop working?
0: Yeah, this is such an important question and topic. It's something that I've spoken on in the past. What we need to understand is that our productivity or our energy and efforts are honestly based on how healthy of an individual we are, essentially because we want people that are going to be able to, I guess, do this work, you know, for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. We don't need people that's going to be able to just do a bunch of actions in a year or two and be burnt out and not participate anymore. Um, and, And we all exist on different ends of the spectrum. You know, some people can only give a year or two, you know, life, changes you know you have kids you move all different types of things happen but we're going to need people that are dedicated long term but i will say one thing that has helped me was i was very self-aware that i needed to make animal advocacy the work that i do so i can clock in and clock out and be a healthy happy person outside of my work hours So that's not necessarily literally meaning that I only do animal activism from nine to five. I have walls up for when and how I participate in animal advocacy. I do treat it like a job now because I did recognize that that's what was going to be sustainable for me as someone who wanted to give themselves to this 100%. My 100% was saying, I have to find a way to make a living doing this. And then outside of that, I can do any and everything that I want in life as a person. I can go skating. I can go on dates. I can just binge watch Netflix. I can go to concerts. Um, Essentially, I have to have space for me to be a complete person outside of animal advocacy. And a lot of people don't make that distinction. A lot of people just give themselves to advocacy full time and they don't think about how that impacts them you know i don't participate in every action i don't donate to every fundraiser i don't look at images i I personally don't even share images of animal suffering on my social media that's that's a self-care practice for me others can and that's nothing wrong with it i just had to really become self-aware of the habits that were healthy for me to maintain being an activist long term i don't check my social media often and that's another self-care practice for me. Uh, So it's just about honestly prioritizing your self-care because we need people that are well-rested, that are healthy, that are going to be happy to be in this movement, to make change. And anger will be a strong motivator, but constantly uh, working in anger isn't healthy for you. You can be angry at times. I mean, it's so much to be Angry about but you don't want to be driven by your anger it needs to be almost like a tool in your tool belt it's something that uh, is for a specific time in a specific place but you don't need to operate in that anger you need to operate in a happy mindset in a in a, I would say in a healthy mindset to be able to do this work long term so figuring out self care practices that are good for you is extremely important and I would advise people that are in this space to to do that consciously think about You know, if we achieve complete liberation tomorrow, what type of person would I be? What would I be doing? And incorporate as many of those things in your life now as possible. If we ever get to collective liberation, we are happy, healthy individuals that know how to exist in a healthy, happy world because we can't want to bring about a healthy, happy world if we are just broken inside individually.
1: Yeah, some very good advice there. You've talked about uh, becoming vegan, which also led you to a spiritual transformation, which wasn't strictly religious. Love to hear a bit more about that journey. How does spirituality and veganism uh, intersect for you?
0: Oh, it is major. I will say that's one of the reasons that the spiritual awakening that I received from becoming vegan is just validated that becoming vegan is one of the best decisions that I've ever made in my life. I think what really Transformed um, me spiritually when I became vegan was understanding and really honing in on how the things that I do have a ripple effect and how they impact others. I don't want to say something that I wasn't aware of, but I just wasn't really aware of the extent of my power until I started to understand that three, four times a day, I'm eating products that are contributing to mass suffering. I'm paying for others to be killed, abused, violated, just exploited. And it's something that I wasn't even on my radar and I was like I said doing this three times a day by purchasing animal products, consuming milk and cheese and dairy and eggs and once I realized that my purchasing choices, my psychology, it it doesn't just end with the purchase that I make, that that purchase has a ripple effect that the way I consume has a ripple effect and impacts the life and death of others. It made me start thinking about other things that I do in my life and being more mindful of how I talk to people, the words that I use, the body language. So honestly, I would say I became a lot more self-aware and that led me to being a healthier individual, uh, mind, body, and spirit. I know that the choices that I make have power and they aren't just isolated things that I do if I go on the walk, you know that's something that doesn't really impact you know the world much, but if I purchase something or if I say something to someone in an incorrect manner, these things have long lasting implications, so now I'm very mindful of my every action, and I'm trying to be as intentional with everything that I say and do as possible to maximize the impact that I want to have on the world so I would say I just became a lot more self-aware, and it this led me to, I guess, being more conscious uh, overall with uh, who I am as an individual.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Spirituality is something that intersects my veganism personally as well. I've been Buddhist for many years. And uh, for those who know me and have listened to my podcast before will know that I questioned my spirituality as well, because for many years I practiced Buddhism talking about compassion and world peace, but still ate animals uh, three times a day and couldn't really see beyond that for some reason, and then discovered the vegan lifestyle and unlocked a realization which shook me to my very core and made me really see what humanity have become, you know, a species that seems a little asleep when it comes to the suffering that we cause by choosing to eat animals. Because I think, as as we often say, we're so disconnected from animal agriculture, especially when we live in a metropolitan city, or a, any city for that matter, we're very disconnected from the process and how animals are slaughtered and killed. But that actually, you know, brings me on to a subject which is quite important is, you know, the effect of animal agriculture on on communities, on marginalized groups. Often, when we talk about veganism, we obviously refer to non human animals, but we don't think about all the people who are also victims of animal agriculture. I'd love for you to chat a little bit about this. What should we know about how animal agriculture affects communities across the planet? What kind of things are going on around the world that really are very invisible?
0: You know, you can say that they maybe to some people they are invisible. I think to us they are very visible. I think. One thing that people may not have a connection with, um, and maybe some of the audience listening uh, understands this, but maybe some don't, um, is the environmental racism that comes from animal agriculture. Animal agriculture's contributions to environmental racism is massive. These factory farms and CAFOs where animals are being exploited by the billions, they produce a lot of manure, a lot of uh, waste runoff. Uh, feces, and all of this ends up most likely in you know low-income black and brown communities. So these slaughterhouses, these animal feeding locations are in typically, like I said, low-income black and brown communities where this methane is being produced, where the, the cesspools and the, the lagoons are damaging the quality of the soil or damaging the air. There's a, a film called The Smell of Money that uh, I have a, a friend who's one of the producers of that film. She chronicles, well, the, the film team chronicles this Black community in North Carolina in their fight against Smithsville, which is the largest producer of pork in the world, and how this large organization that exploits animals is literally creating these factory farms literally in the backyards of this community in spring the feces and the manure runoff in their backyard and all the health implications that come from spraying this feces and how it gets into the air and becomes mist and ends up on their mailboxes and creates all types of respiratory issues for them. And this is just one community. Um, This is happening all over the U S all over the world because black and brown communities are the one that are suffering Largely from what that's why they call environmental racism, because it is industries that are specifically targeting areas where there's not very much political power, economic power and exploiting them and taking advantage of them and putting these factory farms there. So environmental racism is a huge that is happening largely because of animal agriculture. Also, a lot of the workers and the people that work in these industries are from, you know, low-income Black and brown communities, unfortunately, um, far too often. So, you know, we have to not only think about the animals that are being exploited in these industries, but think about the workers that have to kill chickens every, every minute. How many Chickens, they have to kill, and they have to use very sharp machinery to kill to keep up with this kill rate. And this is why animal agriculture is one of the—I believe they—they they are the industry with the highest rates of injury because they work in these operations with heavy, deadly machinery. And like I said, the people that typically fill these positions are low-income and Black and Brown people. And just think about what that does to you psychologically and mentally, having to kill animals every day. I don't think as individuals we're made to consistently kill. So, well, not kill. I don't think we're made to kill at all, but definitely are made to kill in a factory setting. So all of these things are really a detriment to black and brown communities and animal agriculture has a heavy grip and heavy hand on these things that are impacting our communities.
1: Yes, it's a it's it's heavy grip is a is a is a very good phrase. It's something that is so enormous and so powerful. And you talked about economic power. I think a lot of people who live in these communities don't understand or don't don't aren't don't have the knowledge to fight these forces, these powerful financial forces. And of course you've got lobby groups who have billions of dollars who work and function as a wall, I suppose, to maintain the status quo, to allow money to keep flowing. And for these CAFOs, these large farms to be continually built in areas where, as you say, people are not able to fight them, or they don't have the knowledge or the skills to campaign against them. I think there are ways in which people can do it. But I think this is where we need to support communities and give them the tools and the abilities they can to campaign and know where the levers are to pull to make changes. And I think this is essential. You know, one of the things that we can do, obviously, from an economic perspective is support people in their businesses. You're involved in something called Black Vegan Everything, and you spotlight amazing Black-owned businesses. And tell us a little bit about this and what kind of impact have you seen in in creating or working on something like Black Vegan Everything?
0: Yeah, thanks for mentioning this. So this this was actually the first concept uh, that I came up with that kind of inspired me to start my own nonprofit, to continue creating ideas like this under the umbrella of a nonprofit. But essentially, Black Vegan Everything is a website dedicated to Black-owned vegan businesses. And it's not just food businesses, because I do think a lot of times when people think about Black veganism, it's only related to food. But businesses that we showcase aren't only food-related, but they're lifestyle-related. So uh, we're updating the site right now, so it's going through a transformation, but the goal is to highlight hundreds, if not thousands of Black-owned vegan businesses and bring more attention to what they're doing, to bring more support to them, and to also have a space that acts as a social community for the Black vegan community. So a lot of the businesses on the site that we showcased were food-related or restaurants, um, but a lot of them were clothing, body care products health and wellness services that incorporate a vegan philosophy. So the goal was to showcase a wide variety of how veganism is, is exercised in the black community. And we had like 13 different types of businesses that a business could fall under on this website. And it was once again, just to showcase the variety and not specifically associate veganism with food in black communities, because Far too often, Black communities aren't seen as people that care about animals or that are participating in any type of animal advocacy. This website was a space to showcase the wide variety of ways that Black culture incorporates veganism.
1: We're almost out of time. Before I let you guys ask you a couple more questions. So how would you like to see the animal rights movement evolve? Like, where do you see it going?
0: Where would you like it to go in the next five to 10 years? That's a great question. I would definitely love what well, obviously to see more diversity in the movement in terms of who gets showcased, what organizations get funded so diversity is one issue and i think you know over the last five years that i've been involved with the movement i have seen a push for the community to be a lot more diverse but one thing i would also love is for us to become more focused on policy work i think that's the next step in achieving massive global change in terms of the world adopting more of an anti-species philosophy And there's great people that are working in policy work right now. Someone like Connie Spenson from the Agricultural Fairness Alliance, Uh, Eloisa Trinidad, works on a lot of policy work. She works with Chili's on Wheels, with Vegan Activist Alliance. So specifically seeing um, people of color in policy, in animal policy work is going to be a game changer. I remember Connie having this conversation with me about how when she's in D.C. having these conversations about adjusting the farm bill or drafting legislation for more, I guess, animal friendly uh, legislation. Some people are shocked that, you know, there are people of color having these conversations and they are thriving for more. They're really wanting more people of color to be in these spaces. So um, I think policy work is going to be big going forward for the movement.
1: Mm-hmm. Amazing. Before I let you go, I always like to ask my guest this final question. If you were stuck on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, you're not gonna eat the pig because you're vegan. However, uh if I could give you one vegan dish, one music artist and one book, what would you take with you, Chris?
0: So there's this small restaurant locally. Uh they're not vegan, but they have vegan options and they make the most incredible masamine curry. They have a vegan masterman curry. It is so delicious. It has this coconut milk base. And it's it's just delicious. So I would have that mastermind curry from that restaurant locally. One music artist, it would have to be The Roots. They are incredible. They, They have a great lyricist. They have a great band. I feel like they could cover a variety of music. So if I'm stuck on this island, I'm not just listening to one type of music. I would take The Alchemist. That book is so inspirational. Inspiration That's my favorite. Me. Yeah, I would <laughs> definitely take that. It's so many life lessons and it's so beautiful. It's like it's the only book that I've ever cried mm. to when I was reading it. So it would have to be The Alchemist.
1: Yeah, what a beautiful choice for a book. I absolutely love it as well. Mr. Chris Eubanks, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. An hour absolutely flew by. There's so much more I wanted to ask you, but we can do a part two another time. But thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me. Part two coming soon.
1: Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. We'll be back next week with more food, animals, advocacy, technology, and everything else in between.